everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rethinking Supply Chain. I'm Diana, and I'm here with your host, John Abrams. And today we are going to continue our last conversation on where supply chain is headed in the future. And just to give you some background in case you didn't listen to the last episode, John and I were just chatting about, you know, how how backwards some things still are in the logistics world today and how, how that was making John quite depressed the other day. And we obviously don't want that. So then we started talking about where supply chain is headed in the future. And there's actually a lot of hope and a lot of light when we look into the future. So we're going to talk more about that. This is going to be a really positive and upbeat episode. So John, how's it going? Thanks for being here. It's going well. And yeah, maybe no one should listen to the last episode because I I was dark and sad and and just uh, feeling a little bit more, we were we were using the, I, I was going to say metaphor, but it's not a metaphor. This actually takes place where if you're on one of the coasts, it doesn't happen so much in Chicago where you and I live, but on the coasts uh, in sort of any country around the world, you you see these big ports where where you have the giant cranes and the giant cranes pick up containers so basically the the back end of a a semi trailer and and there's these giant 40 foot containers varying sizes but you get the idea and they they put them on a truck and the truck goes somewhere in and uh my depression and anybody that wants to hear me depressed can listen to the last episode that really a lot of that container placement isn't done by the big computer in the sky it's done by a dude with a clipboard who got the cargo manifest from somebody that came down off the ship and handed it to him. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not all that much. There, there really is uh, guys with, with clipboards. Just to carry this point out a little further, uh, I, I, back before the pandemic, I, I would take cruises with my, my family and it always fascinated me that you can actually see the guys with the clipboards running around as a cruise ship is getting loaded. And they're literally looking for things like, where are the frozen foods? Because we want to get those on the, on the uh, ship before they start melting in a, in a truck somewhere. And I always thought, why is it <laughs> in this modern age we don't know where that container is. And it's much the same in, in uh, you know, large cargo ports. So let me not dwell on the sadness of there's people with clipboards. Let me lean into a, uh, a message I got just a few days ago from a, an organization that calls themselves Futurists. And um, there's lots of these companies around the world, they largely do consulting. So, you know, helping an organization understand what's coming. And uh, this particular future organization leans into uh, supply chain. And that gives me hope because oftentimes futurists are talking about IoT, so internet of things, but they're talking about it in the abstract. Like, uh, wouldn't it be neat if all things, all physical things could communicate? And what's that? That's a nice idea, but unless you apply that to something, you know, why do I care that my light bulb has an IP address? Uh, and so you have to put a framework around it. Well, you care because 
you can dim the lights in your home or you can turn them off if nobody's in the room. And so you have to put a framework around IoT to make it of value. And the framework that this futures group is putting around IoT with respect to supply chain is how the internet of things allows automation from the point of manufacture to the point of delivery. And that's a really big concept, but if you break it down into flows of information, we can certainly look at that in a port. Uh, So, hey, I know that this port is bringing in goods that that, uh, have a particular destination, and we're going to now stage and, and dispatch the trucks in a particular way to make them more efficient. And by the way, if those trucks are all automated, uh, and let's leave the, the unions to the side for, for a moment, but if the truck knows where it's going and the offloading machines, the cranes, uh, the forklifts, all of that, if they know what they're doing, then you take out inefficiency at the port. You can, very, you know, pedestrian step, but you can offload the container ship more efficiently with less cost and get goods where they're going uh, quicker. But let me expand a little bit. This futures group also sent along some material. I'm not sure exactly why they're reaching out to me. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Hopefully it's because some of the things I talk about with supply chain are things they're interested in. That's my hopeful thing. Uh, The other side is they think I'm a good mark that they can sell their consulting services to. Either way, it's nice that we're uh, engaged and talking about things. But I want to let me do this, Diana, because uh, I'm going to read off some of the areas that they focus on, and I want to I want to know. And this isn't to make you look uh, ill-informed because you're a wicked smart person, but I want to throw some things out in supply chain, and you tell me after I'm done with them how many of you how many of these things you recognize, and and we'll go from there. So, uh, demand patterns, QR codes, dark factories. RFID, swarm robotics, uh, and real-time transportation visibility. So QR codes, definitely familiar with that. Uh, RFID, and then real-time trans... What was the last one you said? Real-time... Transportation visibility. Is that just like GPS tracking? Sort of. It's, uh, It's one of the things that I think we did an episode early on where we talked about Uh, supply chain visibility. So you can look from either side of the supply chain or any point uh, and see where things are. So it it lets you, uh, so uh, toilet paper shortages during the pandemic. Well, why are those occurring? Can I actually look into my supply chain to see where the, uh, I don't like toilet paper metaphors, but where the clog is in the supply chain. Uh, so, and then what do I what do I do about that? Is there a supplier that can get me around that that clog, uh, or how do I how do I get my supply chain balanced in a way that actually I don't even have to look at it? My supply chain recognized it, so that's part of the real time visibility. Um, okay, dark so I guess factories. that. Nope, no, no idea no. about dark factories. Oh, I want to talk about dark factories. Do you, All right, let's talk about wanna? it. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah, of course. So. 
the idea of dark factories is actually it's it's about lighting. If you have a factory or a warehouse or a cross dock, cross docks are basically little warehouses where you move goods from one container to another container. So you 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 know right size the uh, uh, the loading, if you will, uh, with goods that are going a particular place. So if you are running one of these factories or warehouses without people, you don't need lights because people need lights, robots don't. And so the idea of a dark factory is that it's actually creating product without people being involved. And the implications for those of us in supply chain are that, well, if, if, if my factory is dark, it's getting a signal input. So we've been picking on toilet paper forever on this uh, podcast. And so let's, and I think we will continue to do that because it's going to be the best example uh, for people that grew up in the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. They'll always relate to, uh, I remember when we didn't have toilet paper in my house. So dark factories, uh, let's, let's imagine for a minute that part of the problem in toilet paper shortages was that uh, factories weren't producing enough toilet paper. To some extent, that is true because as we all went and hoarded toilet paper, we drained the inventory that was uh, near us. So if there was a, uh, uh, a warehouse in your neighborhood that was filled with toilet paper to bring it to the store where you bought it normally, uh, when we all bought 50 rolls of piece, we drained that portion of the supply chain. But what didn't happen was that the factories could respond quickly enough to fill that. And there's a number of reasons for that. We're not going to get into that. But a dark factory would have taken that signal from people buying on the internet. So I'm buying through, say, Amazon or buying at their local store, and, and you would see inventory getting depleted very quickly, but the signals would be fed into the dark factory that would just spin up more and more capacity. Of course, there's limits to how much capacity. If you're a toilet paper manufacturer that was already operating at 100%, can't really operate at 110%, that's not, not possible. But let's say you have additional inventory or additional capacity you could bring online, or maybe you could run the factory faster, but at a lower level of quality, which would be fine for people who don't have any toilet paper to buy anyway. Well, if I don't have paper available to me, will I accept a lower standard in order to have something? And the answer is, well, yeah. Uh, so dark factories are taking those signals without people, if you will. And so it's a part of the supply chain that actually in not so much in the States, but in, in Europe and in some of the Asia Pacific uh, areas where dark warehouses do exist. Uh, you, you offload the goods into a warehouse. So the truck driver actually gets out of his truck, he pulls the pallet off the back. The pallet has a, um, a QR code on it or an RFID bar on it. So it's uh, RFID is just a radio frequency identifier. So it's basically the same information 
as what you'd put in a QR code. It's just red without a scan. It's read by a radio uh, beacon. So imagine the factory you you or the the warehouse, uh, the dark warehouse. The truck driver pulls up. He pulls the pallet off the back of the uh, truck. It gets wheeled in past a reader, an RFID or a QR code reader. And now the, the warehouse knows how to process that packet. That, pa that pallet may in total go to a particular point in the, in the, uh, uh, in the warehouse uh, for unloading at a certain time, or though it may have to be broken down. So maybe it's a pallet that has lots of different things on it and it has to be, you know, the, the shrink wrap needs to be taken off it, needs to be stripped down and, and now shelved individually. A lot of that is mechanized today and automated. So in not so much in the US, uh, and, and there's lots of reasons for that, not the least of which are, are some uh, labor rules that uh, companies and factories uh, and warehouses often comply with. Uh, but tradition, you know, tradition is if you build a warehouse, you build it with a whole bunch of lights because you got people pulling products from uh, from things. And so we are very, as a tradition, we are very heavy on the labor side, not only when it comes to a dark factory, which is a little bit out there yet, but a dark warehouse, whereas we will not culturally embrace the idea of a dark warehouse. So what I love about this uh, futures company is that they're taking all of these different things, things like demand patterns and dark factories and swarm robotics, which we can talk about in a second, but uh, invisibility to the supply chain. And they're weaving that all together. And they're saying that this end-to-end -end automation of stuff, of information, is going to lead to a sea change a massive change, a massive disruption in how the supply chain operates on a global scale. And so the last episode, I was, I was depressed um, in, in, after listening to people who are really advanced in today's supply chain practices. I was depressed because all they were talking about was 40-year-old automation thoughts, whereas the futurists are leaning into the complete digitization of the supply chain and saying, essentially, uh, this is transformative for our cultures. And I don't mean the US culture or, or North American, I mean cultures and organizations that all of us depend on highly functional supply chains uh, that honestly, were disrupted because of a lack of automation during the pandemic. So uh, I am left after thinking about these futurists and their approach to supply chain, I am left with a much more optimistic feeling uh, and much more hope because when, when I go to work every day, what I work on is sort of the last mile of supply chain. And what I want to believe is that there's a whole bunch of people working on the, the other stages of supply chain. And so it depresses me to find that there is paper and inefficiency in places where I expect there to be more automation and more efficiency. So 
Uh, do you want to talk about swarm robotics or where are we on time? Yeah, I think we're okay on time. I mean, after that whole explanation, I can definitely understand why you were so excited to talk about dark factories. I've never heard of that. <laughs> and I think it's such a cool concept. Is that something, by the way, is that something that exists at all today? Or is that more of a concept for the future? So fa factories, especially, uh, you know, in the United States, if we're going to manufacture more things onshore, if you will, uh, and again, this is from a U.S. perspective, if we're going to onshore more manufacturing, we are going to have to do it in a more efficient way than uh, what low-cost labor offers in an offshore manufacturing model. So, so uh, I, I don't know if I want to put dates on this because I'll be wrong, but if, if you want to say that offshoring manufacturing started to occur 50 years ago and it reached its pinnacle in the last 10 years, what that was based on was I could offshore or even ship or create something in Mexico using a lower cost labor profile than what I could afford to do in the U.S. And so uh, if you look at the shrink of manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, geography in particular, that was the result of having labor profiles uh, on a cost basis that were more, uh, more cost efficient in perhaps China or in Mexico or somewhere else. To win back that manufacturing business, a manufacturer opening up shop today has to be able to automate and mechanize so that they can run a factory seven by 24 and outperform labor in, I'm not, I'll, I'll just pick on China because everybody seems to be picking on them these days. So why not pile on? But if, if I'm paying low cost wages to a China manufacturing plant that is heavily labor uh, centered, even if that labor is very cheap, if I've mechanized it in my factory in the US and I'm running a dark factory, I can now compete or outperform that, that labor pool in China. And that's how labor comes back. It doesn't come back because we've put tariffs on goods and so we're trying to equalize the cost of labor, which is really the, uh, the weapon we use today. But I have to be more clever and more efficient and I have to operate essentially a dark factory in the US. That also uh, in this futures group doesn't talk about it, but the idea of of intersecting a dark factory with 3D printing, I think that's more of, of where we're headed. So imagine this, that I am not, uh, I, I am just shipping raw materials to a, uh, to a warehouse that is floor to ceiling 3D uh, printers. Uh, if that's the case, and let's pick on, uh, uh, PPE or protective equipment. Let's say that I need to manufacture a whole bunch of plastic face coverings, which are actually all the rage for uh, 3D printers today. If I have a warehouse that's full of 3D printers and I'm taking in plastics as my uh, my my input at that that warehouse or factory floor, and my dark factory is manufacturing through its 3D printer network a whole bunch of face coverings, I'm now not reliant on the traditional supply chain 
to manufacture those goods at a factory somewhere in the world and then ship them overseas, I'm actually taking in the raw materials components at a, uh, think about it as a warehouse today that is now converted to not just being a warehouse, but it's being a, it's been converted to a dark factory that is now printing materials on a, on a as needed basis. And so the intersection of dark factories with 3D printing changes fundamentally our perception of how, or, or in fact, not just perception, in fact, the reality of how materials get created and moved within the bounds of a country. Wow, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I'm really glad we talked about that, but unfortunately, we're out, we're out of time now. Oh. So let's save Swarm Robotics for another time. I do oh, really want to talk I about really, that. I really do. It's such a fun idea. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll do you that. Know, you know what? We're going to spend another 20 minutes talking about that. And so let's just, <laughs> let's just throw that into a different episode. We'll okay. talk about that next time. So that's something Deal. for everybody to look forward to. Come back next time for another uh, session on swarm robotics so you can learn all about that and we can chat more about the future there's so much to talk about with the future of supply chain and all of it is so fun it's so much more fun than the depressing you know clipboard guy <laughs> all i can think about now is clipboard guy <laughs> clipboard guy he haunts my nightmares <laughs> <laughs> he's the boogie monster yes all right well thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back next time for another episode of rethinking supply chain Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Supply Chain podcast. It's brought to you by Venzi, intelligent product content distribution for enterprise commerce. Learn more and say hello to us at venzi.com. That's V-E-N-Z-E-E.com.